Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President, CEO, and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm delighted and honored to have each of you here with us and equally delighted to introduce to you two of my brilliant learned colleagues, Aaron Finkelstein, the managing attorney of the firm who's been with the Murthy Law Firm for about 18 years, as he just reminded me the other day, and Zach who was a former U.S. Department of State consular officer and can share some of his perspectives for having worked within the U.S. Department of State. Today's topic, as most of you know, is dealing with visa and travel issues in the Trump administration. And again, a lot of these issues uh, that we pick and the topics that we're selecting are based on feedback from many of you saying, can you please go over what's going on and how it's going to impact me or my business? So with that, let's get started with the issue of visa issues at consulates. Of course, there's concern that there is increased scrutiny of visa applications. And even though there's been no formal change in the law, there's not been a specific regulation other than a bunch of executive orders issued by Trump and his team who are trumpeting around with those executive orders. Uh, in terms of a formal guidance, either to consular officers or to CBP, there has not been a formal uh, process or formal document other than the focus on you know, let's be careful about securities, looking at foreign nationals, looking at non-U.S. citizens with security concerns, of course, people from a particular religion which who seem to be targeted. And at the end of the day, we often talk about how people from the top in management can come down and permeate their values to the rest of the organization. And I think a lot of that is going on where people feel that since Trump has an inherent dislike or distrust of people from another country, which again baffles me with to having had two four wives from who were foreign nationals, but that's a separate story, how they can be so much distrust and animosity for anybody from another country coming into the United States, a land of immigrants. So with that, Zach, since you were the Foreign Service officer and you probably had to deal with these issues on a daily basis in your work life, can you describe the term extreme vetting that Trump has been trumpeting around a whole lot. Sure. Yeah, I think Trump rolled out his plan for extreme vetting or his idea of extreme vetting during the campaign. And then after the inauguration that carried over and we saw the January 27th, the first so-called travel ban um, executive order, which was then put on hold by the courts. And then the, the administration issued a second one in March. Um, and as part of those executive orders, uh, the president ordered a second, a third, a fourth yeah. that went on, <laughs> and and the president ordered the State Department to look at its security and inelig ineligibility um, clearance processes. And so, after the second executive order, the State Department issued a series of cables, and these are the memoranda that go between the State Department in Washington and the posts overseas with instructions about how to do everything or information, and that includes visa adjudication. And so um, the, the actual text of those cables, though, wasn't real substantive. It didn't change how a consular officer is necessarily going to look at a particular case. It did things like remind consular officers to remain vigilant in their adjudication. It reminded officers that all visa decisions are national security decisions. But that's been something that the State Department has focused on since 9-11, when the 9-11 hijackers all had valid visas to come to the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, it also ordered posts, including consular, but also law enforcement and intelligence officials mm -hmm. um, to identify populations within that particular country that might warrant security. Mm -hmm. Again, this is something that consulates do all the time. Um, there, you know, visa adjudication, fraud threats, security threats are all very uh, particular to a given post. So this is something that posts are already sensitive to. Um, President Trump also 
or these cables also advised increasing use of discretionary security advisory opinions or SAOs. And these are opinions that the consular officer can request about a given visa applicant that has then uh, more thorough background checks done for this for this particular applicant. Um, another cable, which was later rescinded as the result of the the temporary restraining order blocking the implementation of this last executive order uh, provided for increased collection and inspection of applicants' social media. Um, that's a theme that we've seen not only in visa adjudication, but in other contexts as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the cable did recognize that, you know, this is a lot more, or they're, they're proposing a lot more work for consular officers, whether it actually is or not. And so because they want more careful review of applications, they want to limit the interviews that any particular officer does to, to no more than 120 per day. And the cable even acknowledged that backlogs could increase for visa wait times for appointments for visa applicants. Which would probably suit Trump just fine. If it there probably was, would. If nobody shows up into the country except when the economy goes down the tubes, then he's going to want to bl- find somebody else to blame for that. Okay. So thank you, Zach. Um, Aaron, what are your thoughts about what's going on? Well, so far, what I would say is that when all is said and done, more was clearly said than done. Uh, Ultimately, the cables don't appear to have much of a practical effect on the visa adjudications. Uh, I think consular officers have always been trained to look closely at possible security issues and follow security protocols. So being told to basically do what you're already doing doesn't seem like a real change. Uh, But this could signal a increase in different types of scrutiny in the future especially for people with social media accounts and uh, applicants that have certain types of travel histories that might be reviewed. Uh, One new trend that we have seen, though, is consular officers asking certain applicants to retrieve their phones and to bring them to the officers to, to bring them to the interviews so that the officers can review them find contact people in the phone, and perhaps even call them and verify who the applicant is and what the applicant says that they're actually doing. Um, I think that right now we has, there's a big wait-and-see type of approach uh, with, the Trump, uh, with the Trump administration where they're saying, wait and see, all of these things are going to kick in, all of these things are going to happen. But so far, nothing's really um, changed very, very much. Okay. So now we have this whole issue with visas and delays in visa processing. Till now, uh, based on what Zach just explained, it's possible it could again increase. So till now, as you know, last year in 2016, we had a waiting time of two or three or even four months sometimes for H&L visa appointments, interview appointments at the at the consulates, particularly in India. Now the time in April and May of 2017 has come down to two or three weeks with all of the new extra hoops that people are required to jump through, the additional uh, you know, searches uh, with social media websites and asking questions and looking under the hood, uh, this could again increase uh, the uh, the delays for visa appointments, and we expect that to happen. But besides the regular, just the appointment itself, uh, Zach, if I can come back to you, is the most common reason that people see all the time in H&Ls, particularly visa interviews, is denials, what we call soft denials or denials based on 221G or administrative processing issues. Can you go over some of those and the reasons and how an employer-employee can try to overcome maybe some of those issues? Sure. So as I think a lot of people know a 221G refusal is a refusal that means that the officer needs more information or more time in order to make a decision. So unlike uh, a uh, refusal or an approval right at the window, this for this particular applicant, the officer needs to look at something. And there could be a number of reasons to get a 221G refusal. And what can be frustrating for applicants is they often don't know the exact reason why. Um, one reason for that is that one of the the common reasons for a 221G refusal is for a, secu- a additional security clearance. And so the officer, all the officer will tell the applicant is that additional administrative processing is, ne- is necessary. Uh, and that can be based on information in the applicant's application, something already in the system based on U.S. law enforcement or intelligence or previous visa adjudication. Um, and the consulate actually can't adjudicate this case 
until a security clearance is received. From the United States. From the United States, right. Mm -hmm. And also the consulate can do nothing to expedite this. And this is one of the more frustrating points for a lot of people is these clearances can take many months, sometimes six to eight months, sometimes longer. And so people often ask, is there any way to expedite? What if I call a congressperson? What if I call the consulate? And this isn't the consulate that is sitting on this application for any reason. If it is indeed a security clearance, it's something that the consulate itself has to wait to be completed. I know very commonly, especially with certain, uh, you know, software engineers, computer programmers who particularly have had a degree, let's say, in chemical engineering, what they call the dual use technology with the good use, the bad use. And so those people who just think they're going home for a two-week vacation, um, could end up with the TAL or technology alert list delays and could end up, like Zach just mentioned, six, eight months. You would hope that after they obtained it the first time, the second time wouldn't again take as long. But for some reason, it seems like they need to f- again go through that process, maybe because they're not sure if that person in the meanwhile has gone back and is working on some nuclear project in their home country. That could be obviously of grave concern to the United States. Um, and of course, we see other reasons for administrative processing, which usually involve the officers needing more time to make a decision, which could include some other kind of possible ineligibility for the candidate. I know we've talked previously about prudential revocations, DWI, alcohol, all that stuff, obviously criminal issues, additional documentation that may be required, like end client letters, project descriptions, eligibility or qualification of the person based on the degree maybe not perfectly matching the job, et cetera, because you need that for the H-1B definition of specialty occupation, uh, or referring the case, for example, to the anti-fraud unit, the AFU, um, for further investigation, or what happens often is also revoking, uh, requesting USCIS, sending the petition back to the USCIS with a request for a revocation, and then USCIS sends you as the employers uh, a notice of intent to revoke a NOR um, to basically try to convince them why the petition should be reaffirmed for its approval or you put your tail between your legs and acknowledge and accept that, yes, go ahead and revoke it because you don't think you can provide them the information or documentation that they need. And talking about documentation, Aaron, what kind of documentation would an employer be able to provide? Well, before we jump to documentation, I just wanted to make a point. You know, there's something that when uh, when uh, when the Senate and the House get together and they both pass legislation, they send a bill to the president to sign. If the president doesn't sign it in a certain period of time, it becomes what's called a pocket veto. He doesn't have to sign it or he doesn't have to officially send it back. All he has to do is do nothing. Uh, with these delays that you're seeing with 221Gs, with the uh, extra scrutiny that they're talking about, it really doesn't take much. Um, it, you delay a case by two or three months. Uh, you lose the end client. Uh, the company can't wait for you any longer. Uh, just those types of delays in and of itself can create that quote-unquote pocket veto type of thing where if there's uncertainty, by default, you'll lose that particular job. For and sure, then you'll especially lose the visa. with end clients, 100%. The, what if yeah. the H-1 employer says, I still need this person because I'm not finding good enough people? So you can, you can kind of muddle your way through it. But mm-hmm. one big concern that I see when these things happen, and it's directly related to the delays, is the consulate's not aware that you lost the job. And then when the consulate's not aware that you lost the job and they issue the visa and you try to come back on that visa to the United States where the job has already been lost, and then you go right into the arms of CBP, which we'll be talking about a little bit later on, you just have to be very careful because sometimes getting the visa after a pocket veto is going to be something that's going to be very cumbersome. That's an excellent point, Aaron. So basically, CBP could now, if they ask questions and say you're not working at that location for that project, technically they could prevent your entry into the U.S., which we'll discuss in a minute or two. So let's jump back to, Sheila, your question. You asked me about documentation. So if the consulate officer is refusing a case under 221G because they need more information, uh, they'll generally tell you what the documentation is that they're looking for, and they'll note it in a letter that they're giving to the applicant who's seeking the visa. Um, it should the information they should put should be pretty relevant and pretty precise. Uh, when and when you respond to that request, you should give them exactly what they're asking for to the extent that you're able to, with as much precision as possible. 
the documentation, all that type of documentation should be accessible to f- accessible to a lay person, to a common person, because most consular officers are not experts in the information technology or in other technical fields. So it's always good to make sure that you're giving them what they're looking for to be able to make a decision. Uh, for H-1B who are consultant applicants, uh, the consulate in India is typ- typically wants to see end client letters and uh, they'll likely verify the position themselves by contacting the end client as well. So that's something that's there. And even though there's that Senator John Corrin letter to the service center director, and after that the USCIS issued guidance saying you don't have to have the end client letter, we can accept other evidence in lieu of the end client letter as proof of the project and the location and the work and the time frame and all of that, uh, you can expect delays sometimes. You can expect, and again, all of that was sort of valid at one point, but again, now you have this overlay with Trump and with these additional scrutinies being requested of consular officers, and we just don't know where all of this is finally, where where the dust will settle on all of this. And talking about consultants and additional burdens, Zach, can you add what, what's been going on? Sure. I think I mentioned before that a lot of visa adjudication is driven by what consulates are seeing on the ground in the particular country uh, where they're assigned. And I think that's probably driving this current practice in India where most H-1B applicants, almost all, who work at end-client sites in the third-party consulting type arrangement are receiving these 221G refusals because the consulate wants to verify um, the assignment. Um, what can be frustrating, as, as Aaron mentioned before, is that these verifications can take several months. Um, even in cases where the, the visa applicant, the worker, knows that the end client was contacted shortly after the interview, for some reason, it's still taking a long time to get an actual visa decision. And Zach, isn't there somewhere in the Foreign Affairs Manual where it also says if this was a petition that had been adjudicated by the USCIS in full, that it's not something they should be looking behind to a certain extent? That is, yeah. It's in the Foreign Affairs Manual that it's called re-adjudication of the petition, and consular officers are instructed not to do that. Um, But at the same time, the the Foreign Affairs Manual hedges a little bit and says, but it is the consular officer's job to judge the uh, eligibility for this visa. And I think that's what consulates use in order to um, claim the authority to contact end clients and others. Um, And so just people who are in consulting situations should be aware that a delay of several weeks is very likely if they're going to India in order to obtain a visa. The sad part for companies and employers is that if they're mid-vendors in the process, like many people who are owners of consulting companies, on this conference call, then obviously they're afraid they're going to lose the project and the money and the profits and everything that they've built into the system. Okay, well, there's a small ray of, uh, um, uh, I guess, the silver lining to that big black cloud with the continuation still of what's called the interview waiver program that uh, that is applicable and available under very limited circumstances. Aaron and Zach, would you like to discuss those? Sure. So uh, I think that for India, it's very commonly referred to as the Dropbox. And one way to avoid delays associated with the visa application, it's one way that you can avoid uh, avoid delays associated with the visa application because no interview is necessary and all the documents are sent through a courier uh, to the consulate. It's available for renewals of the visas. And even though there was a January 27th, 2017 uh, tr- uh, uh, President Trump executive order requiring visa interviews for all applicants, but the Dropbox, this particular, the interview waiver program or the Dropbox uh, is actually statutory. It's actually by law. And because it's like by law, it's continuing at least for those applicants who are renewing within 12 months of their previous visa expiration date. Uh, different countries and consulates may have different criteria, but that's essentially what's going on. Well, for on. most people on this call, or for many people, I should say, they may not appreciate or understand the difference between an executive order by the President of the United States, which to them sounds exactly like law, or what is the statute. And just sort of a rule 101 is only the U.S. Congress or the U.S. legislature, both houses of parliament, not parliament, we're in the United Kingdom and Indian system, but both houses, the Senate and the House of Representatives must each pass a bill. The two bills have to pretty much coincide with all the terms. Then they send it, as Aaron had mentioned earlier, to the president for final signature. And 
then it becomes the law of the land. That is the statute. Next in level of importance, you have regulations. What are regulations? Most Indians think, most people from other countries, and even many Americans think regulations are the law. Well, no. Regulations are simply the interpretation of the law by the lawyers of the particular government agency involved. So for example, the US Department of Homeland Security or USCIS legal of the legal team, the principal legal counsel in the general counsel's office, generally would interpret a certain gray area that is not clear black and white in the statute, your regulations. Then below the regulations, you have guidance issued by maybe the head of the USCIS, whatever. Those are guidance. Now, outside of this, you have a precedent that says, I have the right to issue an executive order, but an executive order can never conflict with the statute because if you conflict with the statute, the statute should always and always has higher level precedence compared to the executive order, which is why I guess the consulates very wisely are basically telling Trump that he needs to just hold it in there and that they're going to continue to grant interview waiver program approvals. And what are we seeing in India? Because I know a lot of people, a lot of technology people happen to be from the Indian subcontinent. Right. So for India, um, H&L visa applicants can qualify for Dropbox. And actually, when you're applying online, you're filling out your DS-160 visa application. Right before that, the online system will ask a series of questions, and those will direct you as to whether you qualify for the Dropbox or don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for H's and L's, in order to qualify for the Dropbox, first of all, L's can't be blanket, um, they, but individual L's do qualify, as do L2 de- dependents, spouses and children. Um, so in order to qualify for Dropbox, you have to have a previously approved visa for the same visa class. So if it's H, you have to be applying for an H again, L, L again. That's why it's like a renewal. Mm-hmm. Um, that visa has to be unexpired or expired less than 12 months ago. There has The previous visa has to have been issued in India. I know a lot of people like to go to Canada or Mexico because it's not as far to travel to renew mm-hmm. visas, and then maybe the next time they'll be in India. But in order for, to qualify for Dropbox, that previous visa must have been issued in India. And there have to be no refusals um, for any type of visa since that last visa was issued. Hmm. And so if you meet all of those criteria, the uh, U.S. Travel Docs page will let you uh, um, apply via Dropbox. And so when you apply via Dropbox, it also says you can include supporting information, supporting documents um, for your visa type. And so, for example, an H-1B worker might submit pay stubs from the employer, uh, bake statements, client or vendor letters if it's a a consulting situation, uh, contact information for managers, W-2s and tax forms, a resume or a CV, just showing their um, continued eligibility for that visa that they've already had. Okay. So uh, in terms of tips, people who are on this conference call want to know, hey, how all of this sounds a little bit scary and daunting. I'm doing what I can. I'm barely able to find clients, keep my job, keep my employees happy, keep meet the payroll, keep my spouse and kids happy, keep the world happy. And how am I now supposed to have a shot at getting the approval for my employee's HRL visa at the consulate, especially considering that most visa officers have like maybe what, one, two or three minutes at most to focus on what the candidate is basically telling them. Uh, so obviously they're not reading the two or four inch or six inch thick documentation package that's being submitted. That's right. Yeah, the visa interviews are very quick and consular officers do thousands of these interviews. And so they have a sense immediately of whether the applicant is, is typical. Well, instead of thousands, now they're limiting it to 120 a day. A day, right. But it's still <laughs> over a thousand a week. It's that's... like 1,100 a week in that case. Right, right. And so I think for, for applicants, for the best chance of success and to try to avoid either outright refusals or 221Gs, preparation is key. Um, the, the applicant should be well-prepared and able to talk about their employer, their position, their salary, their benefits, their end clients, basically everything about the work they'll be doing in the United States. You know, the consular officer is thinking, this person says they're going to go work halfway around the world. They should be able to tell me about that confidently and clearly. And, and if they're not able to do that, that might start raising some suspicions on the, on the part of the consular officer. Yeah, and okay. One thing it's not a bad idea is to have them actually read the petition that was filed and have them look at the supporting documentation that's there. Because In fact, not only is it not a bad idea, it is required. You should absolutely make it essential 
because when the employee or the beneficiary says something different or opposite of what was written there, that is like the kiss of death. Right. And especially when it's the lawyer doing the preparation, because lawyers are not technical people either. We know, we understand, we put on the paper, but we put it from our perspective. Somebody coming from India, somebody coming for renewal, somebody who's never been to the U.S. before, their perspective of what their job may be may, could be fundamentally different. And just saying the same thing from a different perspective could lead to a denial. And we talked about delays for documentation a little earlier. So that would be another thing I would add in, in being well prepared is to have those documents that we mentioned with you at the interview so that you don't get a 221G just for additional documents, adding that extra delay on top of you know the officer planning to scrutinize those documents a little more closely. Exactly. And you know, earlier, just because I know I'm not a math major, if it's 120 visa interviews uh, per day, that's 600 per week. That's 2,400 in four weeks. So I just wanted to be clear. I just said 1,000 and I thought, ouch, I cut their work in half when they're actually doing double the work. Okay, Aaron, so what about L1 visas? I know that the general standard for consular officers is it must be clearly approvable, especially with blanket Ls. But this is another common issue and problem. It is. Well, first of all, Sheila, the fact that none of us corrected you with the math equation over there, uh, it's a sign that we're all damn good lawyers. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so L1 visas, the standard for counsel officer is clearly approvable, uh, especially for blankets. And it's because the individual credentials have not been seen or adjudicated by the DHS, by, US, by immigration as yet. Uh, these high standards do lead to frequent denials and consular officer recommendations that once you get a denial of a blanket to go in to do the individual petition. Blanket petition applications in India uh, do tend to be refused, but I can tell you that we have seen uh, that where such a thing takes place, if you go and visit the consulate, um, I know that, uh, that Sheila has done this in the past, uh, where you'll go and visit the consulate, where you can present the documents from the company, you can present the application, you can go through the petition, you can explain what you're doing. So at least it gives a clearer visibility that the company is a good actor as opposed to a bad actor. And we've seen that that has had a positive effect in many cases. Uh, the, the real frustration involved with the blanket is that blanket is meant or created to give people an advantage who are big multinational companies bringing people into the U.S. on a constant basis so that their employees can move rapidly to perform the jobs that they need to do. Um, and so that's something that, you know, that's being slowly eroded or taken back from uh, from uh, from the, from uh, in the Indian situation. Because it pretty much removes the advantage of having the bl L1 blanket if it's going to end up there. Most cases end up having to have an individual case filed yeah. anyway. And so I, I recommend that the, you know, that in this situation, your, your employee needs to n read his petition again, needs to know what he's getting into. Somebody should ask him questions and go over it with him. Not necessarily because, you know, they say, oh, we're going we're gonna to do training or we're going to do coaching. It's not a training or a coaching thing. It's just that it's a stressful situation. And if there's a stressful situation where people are asking you questions, it's good that you've already acclimated your body and your mind to being able to respond, to be able to give the information over in a positive way. Absolutely. And I would just add to that, mm -hmm. you know, this clearly approvable standard is a little bit scary from the consular officer's perspective. You know, very little is clear, clearly approvable in the visa adjudication, the subjective process that it is with an interview. Um, so that's part of the reason we're seeing a lot of these denials as well, is that's, that's something that consular officers aren't generally held to. Mm, I, I would be concerned and nervous if I was, and especially when they can come back after the fact, somebody, a boss, the government, the DHS, the president, the team, whoever his cronies are to come back and say, well, clearly this was not clearly approvable. Your head's on the chopping block. Okay, so now let's change gears, switch a little bit from the visa to our friends at the Customs and Border Protection. People incorrectly use the word Customs and Border Patrol, but it's Customs and Border Protection. They are also part of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. They're one of the three main agencies dealing with immigration, like the USCIS. You have CBP and you have ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, that's involved primarily with student issues and with the removal or deportations. But CBP are the people who, whose main job is both to act as the gate security guard at the entrance to the United States and as the welcoming agents, welcoming people uh, to welcome you to the United States, a really sort of almost contradictory 
uh, set of job tasks which are very unpleasant and uncomfortable. And they've actually said to us when we've met with senior CBP officials, the port directors and the senior uh, port directors and the assistant port directors, whether it's at Washington Dallas Airport, at Philadelphia Airport, at Baltimore Washington International or others across the country. And I know Aaron uh, for several years has been on has been the CBP liaison for the American Immigrations Lawyers Association, Washington, D.C. chapter for all of the airports in this region. Uh, because our goal is really how can we understand what CBP is doing and thinking? How can we as lawyers be able to pick up the phone or send a short email or a memo uh, with the legal case, with the sections of the law and the cases telling the CBP that they made a mistake, um, basically being able to negotiate on behalf of you as employers or your employees Anytime somebody is either sent back incorrectly, denied entry, signs a document saying, yes, I'm removable, when they clearly were not removable, etc. So with that, uh, clearly in this day and age, in a Trump administration, there is obviously greater scrutiny of individuals who are requesting admission at any of the ports of entry. And when we talk about POEs or ports of entries, we talk about seaports, land ports and airports, all of the three ports. Also, we have obviously heard of cases where people are being asked to show their laptop, open it up, show all the information, open their cell phones, et cetera, which Aaron's going to discuss. But with that, let me talk about, start off with what's called expedited removal, which is a really scary term that's used when people uh, try to apply to enter into the U.S. So Aaron, can you describe a little bit of what's been going on? Sure. So expedited removal is actually uh, a tool that the it's a law. Sheila mentioned the difference between reg, re, between regulations and between law of the land. It's the law of the land, uh, and it's actually uh, well, it's under INA 235B. But anyways, the point the point that they have is that they can review what your situation is, and if they determine you're not eligible to enter into the U.S., they can without sending you to a judge or anywhere else simply remove simply give you determination of that you're removable send you back to your country and cause a 5 year ban for you to be able to return to the United States without waivers now this is compounded this gets worse when for example they try to attach something called it INA 212A6C or a fraud finding associated with the removability because then it becomes much more difficult to be able to find waivers to return back to the U.S. Do they do that with this by CBP or is it more at the consulates that we see the 212? No, you see it with CBP. As well. You see it with because CBP as well. you clearly are allowed at the consulate, the 212. The 212A6C and the 212A7 for improper documentation right. when they send you back. So that's a typical thing which they do is the 212A7, which she would just mention. And what they essentially do is they say... Well, you came presenting documents for H-1B to go to client A, but hey, you're really coming for client B, so your documents are, are, not, are completely ignored. They're irrelevant. Oh, and since you don't have any documents, we're perceiving you as somebody coming in with preconceived intent, immigrant intent, and therefore we're denying you because you have no basis for being allowed to be admitted into the U.S. So that's usually the, the trifecta, if you will, the three steps that they uh, potentially put on the documentation. And that's the process that they use. The, to try to get it overturned or resolved is a very lengthy period. It's a very lengthy process. And uh, as we mentioned before, it, as we, you know, uh, so to speak, tongue-in-cheek refer to it as the pocket veto, that can be a death knell to somebody's particular job or somebody's particular client site or location because of the really lengthy period of time it takes to uh, undo that if you can undo it at all. Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing that we've talked about is the luggage itself. If you're coming on, a, for example, on a short term, you say I'm coming on a B1 for a couple of client meetings for a month or two, and you've got all your degree certificates and three, four, five suitcases filled with all kinds of stuff. And they're like, hello, you should be having like one suitcase at most. We don't think you're coming as a B1 tourist. We're going to send you back. Or similarly, when you're coming to work with employer A, but now you have your degree certificates and all your reference letters and you look like you're going to be working with employer B because there's an email from them saying, come on over to the U.S., we'll get you started on the project and then file your H-1 petition. Guess what? When they open that laptop, open your cell phone, look at your those, open your luggage and find that documentation, they're going to put you they're going to get you up back out of the country on an expedited removal because technically you committed fraud 
with the C to the CBP officer by claiming to work with employer A when you had no intention to come in and work with employer A. Right. So what can be done, Aaron, after an expedited removal? Well, it could even be more simple than what you're describing. They could simply say who paid for your H-1B process. And you said, oh, I paid for, you know, I paid for, you know, part of it, meaning I paid for the premium processing, which is legally permissible. Oh, uh, you paid for part of your process? That's illegal. You got, it was a violation when you got it. Uh, did you tell the consulate officer that you paid for your process? Uh, you failed to disclose something to the consulate officer. Now, that's fraud. They can start walking through fact patterns in a unique way to try to make it, uh, to try to, manif- I don't want to say manufacture, but to overzealously apply what they perceive as a standard for preventing preventing a person to enter in. And uh, unfortunately, I've seen that in some ports of entry. Uh, I, I hate to say it, but like, for example, San Francisco, I didn't say that out loud or anything. But Oh, but why just San Francisco? Chicago has been our good friend. San Francisco, Newark, JFK. Dallas, Fort Worth. I mean, the list so, goes on and on and on. Right. So you asked, what can you do about expedited removal? There is no, quote unquote, appeal system for expedited removal. You can ask them to reconsider. The first thing you want to do is make sure you keep a copy of all the documents they give you, especially the Q&A. Uh, the biggest uh, question and answers that you go through and you have to decide when you're going through the process of being, uh, being expedited removed. Uh, the critical point, the biggest thing that you're going to be looking at is to try to find what the officer's headspace was when they made that particular decision and then to be able to bring additional evidence or documentation to overcome that particular finding. Uh, the, the method that we use is we start moving our way up the hierarchy within the port itself and eventually we end up at the regional director's office. Regional director's office is the person in charge of all the um, ports in a particular area until we get some type of response or feedback that comes back. Uh, it is a long and tedious process, but we, you know, it's amazing when the officer is pushing, when somebody's been sitting in a room for four hours, when they haven't eaten something, what they agree to or what they think a question is being asked. And then when you get it in your office where you're calmly sipping a cup of Coca-Cola as you're going through it and you realize, wait, this is wrong, that's wrong, so on and so forth. It's amazing what you can present to have them reconsider what they've done. And we've been highly successful at being able to present our client's case after the fact. Uh, and get them to change it. Even if you're able to get them to change it from expedited removal, they tend not to want to say, okay, we'll undo all the damage that we've done. I'm not even quite sure they're able to, but what they tend to do is they tend to upgrade the si- up. Is it upgrade update. or update the system? And when they update the system, they're essentially switching it from an expedited removal to a voluntary withdrawal of admission, which carries no bars against it and allows the person to at least apply again and come back in. Yeah, and you know, if I can just go back to that one issue where you talked about the uh, CBP at the airports um, basically saying, hey, did you come in to work with client A or client B? Did you pay for the filing fees for the H-1 petition? Tell your clients, warn them, prepare. Like Aaron said, read the petition, go over the questions with them, tell them. If you're asked, did you pay for the petition, what is the answer? And if they say, well, I paid for premium because I didn't want to wait eight months for the USCIS. No, you did. I paid for it. I, as the employer. Right. The premium is not the underlying petition. So there's a difference. So tell your employees, the beneficiaries, to tell the truth. Clearly, you can never coach and tell somebody to say something that is fraudulent or improper because you would be in trouble and so would we as uh, your attorneys. But we're not, there, there is no attorney-client privilege with this teleconference, just FYI, uh, with on somebody who's not a client of the firm. But the point is you need to make sure that you go over the issues with them very, very clearly. And so we have been very successful at the Murti Law Firm, as Aaron explained, in going back to the CBP, going back to the airports, going back to the bosses, going back to the port directors and saying this fraud finding, this person being subject to a five-year bar is incorrect for the following reasons. Here's the paperwork. Here's an affidavit. We prepared the documents because remember, as Aaron just pointed out, there is no judicial review or appeal available for a CBP decision. This can be a five-year sentence, if not a life sentence for many of these poor people whose families rely on them for their ability to come and work in the United States. Okay, so let's go from where we are to withdrawals of admission. This topic, by the way, is so exciting. I didn't realize we're almost close to 40 minutes and we tried to wrap up in 45 minutes. So we may run a little over, but hopefully uh, you will stay because first of all, 
you're getting fabulous information from brilliant attorneys. Second of all, we're not charging you a dime for it. So a few minutes of your <laughs> lunchtime, um, it should be well worth the investment. So Zach, can I have you describe a little bit what they can, what the option is for withdrawals? Sure. And Aaron talked about it a little bit before about the so-called voluntary withdrawal of admission. Uh, how voluntary it is is a little bit questionable, given that you know this is generally after questioning and possibly threats of, of removal and things like that. They ask would you like to voluntarily withdraw your application for admission to the United States? Um, and when faced with a bar or other severe consequences, that might be an option. Um, so in a withdrawal situation, the foreign national is allowed to withdraw their request for admission and then is immediately turned back around to, to their home country. Um, and made to pay for that return trip yes, to get back. Yeah, they have to pay for, the, for that airline ticket, which is going to be a bit expensive given that it's issued that day. Um, and so it's a little bit less severe than the expedited removal order because there is no bar. You know, there's the, the five-year bar doesn't attach to uh, withdrawal of admission. At the same time, the visa is still canceled, and there, the Q&A is still done, and the CBP will, will write a report on a form that will go to the consulate. So the visa has been canceled, and you have to go apply for a consulate from a consulate for a new visa, and the consular officer is going to have access to all of this information entered into the system by CBP, which can often be uh, you know, fairly derogatory, fairly damning information. It's going to be CBP's perspective, kind of unfiltered perspective on why you were turned around at the border. Um, and so someone who has been denied admission or has voluntarily withdrawn their, their request for admission is going to face pretty tough questioning at the consulate. Uh, the next time they go in for a visa interview. Absolutely. And we've actually had people, I remember years and years ago, where they would say the CBP inspector or officer asked me, do you want to the government to pay for your return ticket? In which case you can sign here. And the sign here was usually expedited removal. Or would you like to pay for your own return ticket, in which case you sign here, not explaining anything about a five-year bar or expedited removal? So most people think, oh, the officer is so sweet and so kind. They're helping me to make a decision and telling me we'll pick up the tab for you to kick you out of the country. So let me sign on expedited removal without realizing you've just kissed away five years or for the rest of your life, the ability to reenter and obtain a visa at the, um, into the United States. So please remember, I tell somebody else whom I spoke to another client today who had another question, went to the, the USCIS officer for advice. The USCIS, the CBP, the DHS officers are not your attorneys. Their main focus in life isn't to guide you with the proper way of how the safest way for you or your company or your employees to enter the U.S. You need to either do your research or, if you're smart and wise, invest in a lawyer who can actually help you and guide you. Very common problem that we see, another problem is, of course, I-94 card dates, which are very short in time, which are either expiring or expired. Sometimes spouses get the wrong date, the principal applicant, because they give it date based on the visa stamp date and not on the H-1B approval notice date, or because the I-797 is expiring, but the employer has filed an extension with USCIS. They come in, but the approval happened the night before, so now it's the last action rule, which one governs. Um, and, uh, you know, we see problems all the time, which can be corrected either by CBP, by going to the CBP office. Again, Murthy Law Firm has been doing this for the last 15, 20 years from the time that they started doing, making incorrect even 23 years. But going back to the CBP officers, getting it corrected. Uh, and uh, when other lawyers have said, oh, my God, you now have a 10 year bar. Oh, my God, your life is over. Depending on the situation, we've said, don't worry, we think we can easily try to turn this around for you and been extremely successful for a fraction of the fees it would cost to pack up leave and then apply for a waiver from outside the country or go to some select law firms or lawyers that claim to have inside contacts with the government, which, by the way, any lawyer and every lawyer can have very good inside contacts with the government, um, where we can actually turn and reverse a finding for very nominal fees. So if your passport was expiring for the employee, then the I-94 date is much shorter than the H-1B petition approval date. So the employee needs to see the date carefully at the time of entering the U.S. There's a whole host of other issues, which because of time, we're going to go over very briefly. And I'm going to ask both Aaron and Zach to touch upon the other issues. Okay, so there are, there are other issues that are associated with, uh, for example, referral to secondary inspection. 
Uh, just for a nanosecond, I do tell my clients when they're coming in, they're saying, what can I do to prepare for coming through the border? I tell them, eat well on the plane, sleep well on the plane, bring a bottle of water with you when you come off the plane, um, and be very patient. Uh, if you do get a referral to secondary inspection, sometimes there's a particular person, that, there's a particular reason, excuse me, a flaw in one of your documents that they perceive that they want to clarify. Sometimes you over-explain things at the window so they can't make a decision in two to three minutes. So they send you the secondary because they can't delay the primary line moving forward. Sometimes it's just random that the officer looked and felt, and okay, let me send them and just do a double check quickly. Um, and the problem is that when you get to secondary, many of the ports are small ports, and they have to clear the primary line before they can focus on actually going through, having enough staff to go through what's going on in secondary to be able to determine how to let people go and to let people move forward. So you can kind of expect lengthy uh, waiting periods until they get up to your term, until they get to view your documentation. And, and most of the time, uh, allow you to enter into the U.S. and issue the I-94 card. Uh, one strategy, uh, now, um, now the, just to be careful, because when you're there, as we mentioned before, as Sheila mentioned very clearly, they can search your belongings, they can search your electronic devices, that includes your emails, your texts, your WhatsApp applications, your Twitter feeds, your Facebook pages, and even the ones that say privacy, we're not showing it to anybody else. Well, now you've just essentially allowed them in in your group, so to speak. Um, the, uh, many documentation also can be misconstrued. We've mentioned that already. I'm not going to touch on that too much other than to be careful about what you're carrying and be willing to explain it while you're there. One thing that I always tell people is uh, no matter for what reason, after they come through a secondary and they do get issued the I-94 and they're admitted into the United States, there's something which I think this is a made-up term of my own, but I call it like a ghost hit. There's some type of documentation that you were in secondary, and that ghost hits and can sometimes cause other delays for the next time you enter into the United States. So I recommend they go through a process called TRIP, which is the Travel Regress in Redress Inquiry Program. And what TRIP essentially does is it allows you to explain what happened and allows you to get what's called a TRIP or a redress number. And then when you come back in the future, you can put your redress number in there. They already check the system and they've already pre, so to speak, loaded to allow you to continue to um, on your journey without a delay like you had the last time. Exactly. So, what about, Zach, what about strategies for success? Sure. Uh, one of the big ones that we've talked about and touched on a little bit uh, already is about being careful about the electronics that you're carrying, smartphones, tablets, uh, laptops. These can all be searched. Uh, the information you have on there can be possibly misconstrued or, or be looked at in a way differently than you intend, um, and CBP has the authority to do that. And we've seen misunderstandings turn into expedited removals. Um, so that's one thing to be careful about. Uh, another strategy for, particularly for H's and L's, is to have the employee arrive during normal business hours so that the, if the CBP officer wants to verify an assignment or uh, a work location or anything like that, it's um, at a time when somebody at your business or at the end client will be around and able to pick up the phone. Um, and along with speaking of electronics is to be aware of online information regarding both the employee and the company. Um, one example might be, you know, where the employee has a LinkedIn account and is claiming to be an employee of the end client rather than an employee of the actual employer. Mm -hmm. And that can lead uh, CBP to question the employee-employer relationship with the petitioner. And actually, we at Murthy Law Firm, Aaron was reminding me, have like a Murthy on call process where we get a G28 signed when someone's about to travel, if they're nervous or they aren't prepared or whatever, just to go over with them the process, get them prepared, tell them how to talk, walk, dress, how to behave, be available for information with either consultations that we can do or actually be available based on the time of their entry to be able to speak or help them with the process so that they can, when they're given, they're always given the right to make one call. Um, well, maybe at the port of entry, sometimes they don't actually give you that. But sometimes they say, okay, do you want to make any call? And before you make it to your family or friends or whatever, unless they're willing to call the lawyer, say, yeah, I need to make a call to the lawyer, contact the lawyer office, especially if you've told them the date and time of the entry so that a lawyer is available and ready to speak with you um, in advance based on the fee that you've kept. 
uh, also quickly before we try to wrap it up is remember whether we are even if you're a U.S. citizen or a lawful permanent resident, your electronics can still be checked at the port of entry because you are even though you're not seeking admission as a lawful permanent resident or green card holder or a citizen, the fact that for terrorism protection, for security of the country, they are allowed to look at your um, electronics. And I know that Aaron and we were discussing earlier where he said, wipe out everything, <laughs> tell people you just use a small flip fo- phone, you know, very not a smartphone for when you travel abroad. So that's why you're carrying the El Cheapo version, uh, because you know that they can look at information and sort of give you, I guess, a hard time. I think most people feel violated more than wanting to hide anything. None of us have, hopefully none of, most of us don't have anything to hide, but it still is very unnerving to think that somebody's going to be poking around and looking at all of your emails and messages and what have you. Whatever happens as a lawful permanent resident, remember that you do not want to sign form I-407, record of abandonment of lawful permanent resident status, irrespective of what the CBP officer tries to tell you. And the reason I say that is, remember when Trump's uh, executive order was passed, preventing those countries from coming in before somebody said, whoops, we actually didn't mean to include lawful permanent residents. Apparently, 450 or 500 lawful permanent residents had signed the I-407, abandoning their permanent residency. And now we'll have to either try to get it back, go through a bunch of hoops, legal process, hire lawyers, file a lawsuit, So basically something that could have been fairly simple has now become a nightmare by giving up your green card uh, and signing the I-407. Well, no one can force you as a lawful permanent resident to sign it. So if you're the employer or owner of the company, remember, you can say, thank you. I'm not willing to sign it. I need to speak to a lawyer. They have to give you the legal, generally, unless you've been out for so many months that you potentially technically abandoned your residence uh, for more than one year, when it's sort of an automatic presumption of abandonment, you are not required to sign any form. You cannot be forced. You're always entitled to hearing in front of a judge. And uh, stuff happens all the time. So Um, I know that because of the time I'm going to really wrap up, I did want to say that because I know so many questions are coming up both to us as a firm and as individuals about what happens if I'm pulled over by the cops, what happens, what are my rights if I'm in my car, what are the rights of my employees, maybe we'll have a separate session just to deal with those issues about what what I can and cannot do, when can I speak, when should I not speak, when can I tell them I choose not to use, I choose to remain silent, etc., rights afforded to us under the Ill- the doctrine that gives us the mother of all rights, as they say, the U.S. Constitution, uh, which is the reason I would like to think many of us choose to come to this great country, which sometimes is ignored. But remember, it is an extremely powerful document. No Supreme Court, no judge, no president can ever touch you or touch the document. When the government comes knocking, you want to make sure that you have access to your lawyer, you have access to speak to somebody, and that you absolutely should feel like not compelled to volunteer anything that you're not comfortable about volunteering. Aaron, did you want to add anything before we wrap up? No, it's just that all of these situations, not all, but many, many, many of these situations which end up being miscommunications or misunderstandings or overzealousness of officers can be undone. And the only thing that I want to emphasize is to try to follow as many of the guidelines, the common sense guidelines that we mentioned, because even though you can undo it, sometimes the damage is done because of the delays. That's also that this is a good takeaway to be aware of what's going on and to really try to follow the protocols that we had outlined before. Thank you, Aaron. Zach, did you want to add anything? I think that all sounds good to me. That sounds great. So on behalf of Aaron Finkelstein, the managing attorney at the Murthy Law Firm, Zach Hogan, another brilliant attorney at the Murthy Law Firm, myself, Sheila Murthy, and the entire Murthy Law Firm team, we thank you so much for participating in today's conference call, and we look forward to continuing to help and serve you, your employees, and your business as we all deal in these somewhat troubling and difficult times. Have a great afternoon.